Welcome to the Providence Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Kelly Lauder. If you'd like to stay connected, download our app Providence Community from your phone's app store or visit our website at providencecommunity.org. Thank you so much. I'm Kelly and I have the honor of welcoming you into my home today. God's been stirring up a word in my heart from Psalm 23 verse 5. And I was talking to uh, Pastor Nathan a couple of weeks ago. He was asking me if God was showing me anything new. And when I shared that, uh, God had been stirring up some things from Psalm 23 for him too. So he preached last week on verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to be picking up today starting in verse 5. I'm excited to share what God's been teaching me. Um, But just to get us started, I'm going to begin reading to you in Psalm 23 from verse 1. Just to set the context of moving into verse 5. So the word says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And I don't know about you, but that's kind of a fresh thought that God's been showing me, that he has to make us lie down. (laughs) He has to make us rest. There's so much striving that um, the enemy of our souls is always pushing us into, thinking we have to do. And God says, I am a Lord who is a shepherd that is going to make you lie down. I'm going to teach you the way of rest. And I just love that promise. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And here's where we're going to pick up. Verse 5 is going to be our focus for most of our time here today. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever forever. Those two verses are packed with beautiful promises of belonging, provision, and power. And so verse 5 teaches that God leads us to places he has prepared for us. He says, I prepared a table before you. And so he's prepared these places for us to tap into his divine provision. Not that we're going to do it from our own strength and our own means, but he says, I have places prepared that I'm going to lead you to a table for you to come to and partake of my provision for you. And I want you to see that it's personal. He says, you prepare a table before me and you anoint my head. This isn't some general promise for his church, his body, his people. It's individual for every single one of us. He says, I want to lead you personally as your shepherd father who loves you into these places of divine provision that I can bless you with places he has prepared for us where we can move beyond earth's limitations into divine empowerment. He says, I anoint your head with oil and your cup overflows. And so I want you to notice that it's not just enough, it's more than enough. It is more than enough. My cup overflows. And so God wants to lead us to places where he will lavish us in blessing that won't just affect us, but will spill out and bless others around us. This is his promise to us. Powerful scriptures. Beautiful. This is one of those promises that we see and we want to live out, right? We want to take hold of this one. But I think the problem is that most of us aren't living in it. We don't live it. We see it there, 
and it's kind of one of those theoretical things that we know God says, but we don't live it. We're still living within the limits of our own capabilities instead of divine overflow. And so I want to take our time together today to see if we can discover why. What is keeping us from stepping into that? And I believe that as much as we want the benefit of the promise, we resist coming to the table because of its location. Because God says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That doesn't seem very comfortable to us, does it? Not very inviting. We want the table to be in a nice, safe place. We'd prefer that God just drop his blessings on us while we're sitting in the comfort of our sofa or maybe in our church pew, right? That's what we'd prefer. And honestly, our perception is that if God is good, he's going to keep the enemy far from us where we can feel safe, right? That's how we perceive it. And so we think that if, if he lets the enemy come near, if it's close, then that sometime means, somehow means that he has forsaken us and he doesn't care. But that's not what God says. He says he prepares his tables for us right where the enemy is, right where he is standing, right where he is having power. And God says, these are the places that I prepare tables for you to open up my provision in your life and to anoint you with power to defeat that very enemy. This is where it comes from. But when we don't understand that, that when evil starts to come near us, when we feel pressed in, when it comes close, we start to believe the enemy's lie that God has forsaken us. He's abandoned us. We doubt his goodness. That's our natural instinct is just to slip into doubt and believe the lie, partner with that lie that God must not be good. If this is happening, God can't be good. We doubt his goodness and we doubt his power. And I believe that this is the destructive seed that Satan planted in man's soul that changed everything. It was doubt of God's character, doubting his goodness. It's how Satan maintains his power and what he uses to manipulate all of us. In the garden, Satan convinced Eve to believe that God was withholding his best from her. He starts to get her to question God's heart for her. Did God really say and he starts to suggest that God is keeping something from her, withholding something from her that she wants. He says, if you will eat of this tree that God is keeping from you, you can be like him. And so this thought enters her mind that God's not really for her. And this is the root that convinces her to take matters into her own hands. Well, if God isn't for me, then I must provide for myself. I must do something for myself. And so pride is born in her heart and self-sufficiency. And she separates from the goodness of God and takes matters into her own hands. And ever since, we have been caught in this cycle of trying to self-protect and pro provide for our own needs because we are unable to see and trust God's goodness. This is the veil that the enemy puts over us the seed that he has planted in us that keeps us from stepping into agreement with who God is. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Scripture teaches us that without divine intervention, we are incapable of seeing God's true image. 
We cannot see it. There is a supernatural veil that hides his glory from us, so we cannot see his true self. We see what the enemy wants us to see of him, to keep us from uniting with him. And God is all about revealing his glory. We see it all through scripture. One of those verses is Habakkuk 2.14. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God is working all things for the revelation of his glory. But many of us miss how God himself defines his glory. It's more than just his majesty. It's more than his power. And he reveals it to us in Exodus 33. We have this scene in Exodus 33:18 where Moses says to the Lord, please show me your glory. He cries out to God, reveal it to me. And this is how God answers him. God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. God equates his glory with his goodness. That's how he himself described his glory. And he wants us to understand that he intends to fill the whole earth from one end to the other with the goodness of who he is. His nature, his love, his mercy, his kindness. It is the very essence of what makes him so wholly other and unique. He is innately good. All that he does is good and springs from the love that defines him. And that's one of the things that we need to understand about God. Love isn't what he does. It's who he is. It's his nature. He cannot operate apart from that. So every action that he takes will be in agreement with that. It is good. It is for good purpose. It is out of love, and it is love for us that motivates it. So even as he is setting a table in the presence of an enemy, he is working a good purpose for us in it. It is not to harm us. It is not to destroy us. It is because he wants to unlock something for us out of his goodness and his kindness and his love that reveals an expression of who he is. And so he says to Moses, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. And a couple of verses later, he says, and while my glory passes by. So there again is God interchanging those words, his goodness and his glory. He describes them the same way. When my goodness passes by and when my glory passes by, he says, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And God is saying to us, I will shield you and protect you. It may seem dark. You may feel pressed in, but you will see and recognize my goodness on the other side. This is God's promise to us. He intends to reveal the glory of his goodness, the beauty of his nature, his kindness, his love, his mercy, the fact that he is life, not death. He brings life and fruitfulness and everything that is good every time. And this is where we struggle because we don't trust it. That's the seed that Satan planted. We doubt it. We doubt God's goodness. And so fear entered as a result. Because when we cannot receive and trust God's love for us and the power of that love, fear comes in. We don't feel safe, and fear comes in. That's why love is the only thing that casts out fear. It's why. And so fear entered the world, and we are living in this perpetual insecurity because we don't feel safe. Our hearts are closed off to the love of God supernaturally by the enemy. And so God is working to open that veil, to open up our hearts, to receive the love of God again, which empowers everything for us to move forward. Fear exists 
where our ability to trust love has been broken. That happens in our relationship with God. It happens with our relationships with people, right? Someone that's not secure in a marriage doesn't trust the love of their spouse. We don't trust the love of a friend. That's why fear comes in, and we operate out of that fear and often (laughs) self-destruct. God specifically calls out fear in 2 Timothy 1.7. It says, God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control, a sound mind, a mind at peace. And so God says, do not tolerate fear. It did not come from me. He is a God of love, and that's the only thing that will overtake that fear. And Ephesians 6 tells us that our struggle, our fight, our enemy is not flesh and blood, but it's principalities and spiritual forces trying to incite fear and draw us away from our God of love. This is the enemy that will always be present where God's tables have been prepared. (laughs) Always principalities that incite fear by convincing us to partner with the lie that God cannot be trusted. So always this is the enemy that will be present at God's tables where he is looking to open up and provide something to us. And I just, as we are here in this time of such uncertainty, unique times that we're living in, in this pandemic, in the quarantine, I just wonder what fears have been stirred up in you. Fear of illness, of death, fear of financial ruin, loss of security, maybe loss of family, even fear of government control and the loss of our rights, all kinds of fears that are stirring up because we don't feel safe. We believe the lie that we aren't safe where God says, I am your safety, I am your rock, I am your security, and in me, you are safe. What if through all of this, God has set a table to reveal his goodness in the presence of our enemy? What if he's offering an opportunity to unlock divine anointing as we face and conquer fear? I just believe this is so much of what God is doing in this day and in this time, is we are a body of Christ that has lived so much submitted to fear, I've seen it so much in the last few years of ministry. As I travel and speak, there is more fear in the body of Christ than there is in the world. And it should not be. And so God is allowing and positioning and preparing a table to call his body to come and receive the anointing from him and the power to conquer that enemy that has been crushing us down and crushing us even though we are his. It should not be. So as I look at this passage, I want to look at another time in Scripture. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn with me to Exodus chapter 13, I want to look at where we see an illustration of this played out in Scripture, where God did it before. And if you know the story of Israel at all, they were 400 years in slavery to Pharaoh, um, working and and being crushed under this oppressive, dominating regime, and they were crying out to God, and so the time came where God said, it's time, I'm going to deliver you out from under this captivity, and I'm going to bring you into a place that is beautiful and of my provision, a land of milk and honey. And so he sends Moses, he calls him out of the wilderness, appears to him, reveals his glory to him in a burning bush, and sends him into Egypt. And so he works this miraculous deliverance by doing these, these 10 um, plagues that he unleashes and finally convinces Pharaoh to let his people go. And so he tells them, I am bringing you not only out of Pharaoh's power, but I'm bringing you into a new land. So it's not just a coming out, there's a going in. 
And that's where most of us get stuck when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We come out from being owned by the enemy, but we're supposed to go in to the kingdom promises. We're supposed to go in to sonship and, and all that God has for us. But there's a process for that taking place, and it goes by way of the wilderness. And I want you to see that with me. So I'm going to read to you from Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. It says this, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. So I want to just stop here for a minute. God did not lead them on the shorter, more comfortable, faster route. <laughs> he led them through the wilderness. And what was his reason? We read it right there because he knew they were still bound by fear. Even though they had been delivered from its power, they were not living that promise. They didn't believe it for themselves yet. Their soul was still crushed by the belief that fear had power. And so he knew they would take one look at the Philistine army that was on the land that they were supposed to claim, and they would turn around and go right back into Egypt. So God in his goodness, because he wanted them to not just come out of Egypt, but to go into the land... He sent them on a different route into the wilderness. He leads them there to teach them what it means to belong to him and to carry his presence with them. They've not known that intimacy. He's been a distant God that they just cried out to that now has shown up. And now God is wanting to teach them what it means that he is with them and that his his presence brings provision and protection and all of that. He's already revealed his power to them. They have witnessed these 10 miraculous plagues that God has revealed himself and said, here is who I am. I am powerful. I am powerful enough. But he still wanted them to know his heart. So he led them into the wilderness to reveal that part of himself to them. And so in verse 21, we read, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So he had shown them his power, and now God begins to reveal himself. They saw his works. Now they're seeing him. God's showing up, literally. And he says, I will not depart. I will be before you where you can see me right there in your midst. He wants to reveal himself to them. This is always what it's about, bringing people to himself that we would unite with him. And so he lets their eyes see him, not just his works, but now teaching them his presence brings both provision and protection. And so he becomes light to find their way through darkness he becomes cloud cover to shelter them by day so that they would not be scorched by the, the sun and the heat. And he's, he's showing them, I am the I am. That's what God said to Moses when he's sending them in. He says, you tell them I am is coming for them. I am all that you need. It is found in me. I am the answer. And so he reveals himself. And Exodus um, 14 then begins, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp um, in front of Pi-Haharoth between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. 
So he gives a very specific place that he himself has picked and established that he's sending them to. He sends them to that specific location on the edge of the Red Sea, and he positions them in a place where they appear to be vulnerable to the enemy, cornered and easy prey. And he says that in verse 3, he says, For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. So God is setting a table. He's positioning them. He's putting them in a very specific place to show them his heart for them and to unlock provision and anointing so they can see he's not just a God of power. He's a God of love and he will not forsake them. So he sets this stage. He positions them in that place. And then we read verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. Now we're going to stop right there because that's one of those scriptures that makes most of us pause and question God's goodness, right? Why on earth would he do that? I've had that question myself, right? If God has already revealed his power, delivered them out, why in the world would he send Pharaoh after them, scaring them to death, right? Why would he do it? And he says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all the host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So here again, we see this connection with glory. But remember what God has already shown Moses. He says, my glory is about revealing my goodness. I am a good God who does not tolerate oppression, who does not want my people fleeing and fearing this enemy forever. I want to put an end to it. So he sends them, he sends Pharaoh after them. I prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemy. And so we read, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and he took his army with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord, we see again, hardened the heart of Pharaoh the king, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army. All of them left Egypt and went after them. And he overtook them and camped in the very place that God had sent them to, right there at Pihathroth in front of Baal-Zephon. So here's what he does. He sends the enemy right there. He leads them to the place where he had positioned his people and he had set this table. And then in verse 10, we see the people's response. When Pharaoh drew near, remember, 600 chosen chariots and his entire army unleashed to follow them. The people lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. There's the enemy. The real enemy right there is fear. Fear. It was not the Egyptian army. The enemy that God was calling them to defeat was fear. And so they see it. And look at what the root of that fear is. In verse 11, they say to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done bringing us out here? What are they doing? What's the root? They're questioning God's goodness right? He has brought us here to die. Immediately, they fear the worst. They knew that God is powerful, but they did not know that he is loving. 
they could not receive that truth. And so that kept them from uniting with God and this fear just descends. And they say, is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die here in the wilderness. That's what they say to him. I'd rather still live as a slave than die here. Isn't that what the enemy does to us? We start out on the journey with Christ. And why have I done this? Life just got harder. I want to go back. It's what happens over and over again because this foundational truth is missing about God's goodness that we don't understand. We will never enter God's promises while remaining a slave to fear. Never. We cannot submit to fear and trust God's promises. And so God prepares tables, places where we can conquer that enemy and destroy it. Fear is the real enemy. While everyone else is trembling in fear, Moses steps up. Now Moses is different from all of the rest of them because he has begun to walk with God and to know him. He's been speaking to him face to face. He's been letting God speak into his heart. And that intimacy with God has stirred up a faith in him that none of the rest at this time have. And so that intimacy has unlocked a perspective that no one else sees. You remember that scripture, the God of the age has blinded the minds of everyone else. And it is only intimacy with God that rips open that and allows us to see from divine perspective. And so Moses steps up and he says to the people in verse 13, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. This will be their end. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. This kingdom's son who has learned to live in intimacy with the father and not as a slave to the world steps up and says, this isn't your fight. Don't be afraid. You're not slaves anymore. (laughs) You're not slaves anymore. God has not brought you here to destroy you. He has brought you here to show you his salvation. He has brought you here to prove to you that the power that you think Pharaoh has over you is a lie. It's a lie. God's power trumps it. He brought them there to reveal his goodness, to destroy the Egyptian army at the Red Sea, and not to harm the Israelites. So Moses approaches God in the midst of this, cries out to Lord for instruction. And in verse 19, we read, the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night long. Do you see it? Faith, this moment of fear that everybody says, we we have no hope. We've got to run back. We're going to be destroyed. One man stands up in faith and chooses to seek what God is saying. And faith moves God as a shield between God's people and the enemy. Our fear gives the enemy access to us. We partner with fear and we invite him to come and pursue us. We give the enemy permission to press us down and crush us when we partner with it. But when we will reject it and come into alignment with God and his heart, God himself becomes a shield between us and the enemy. And so that pillar moves 
around and comes between. And Moses, stepping up to the table that God had prepared, stretches out his staff over the sea. And the Lord drove back the water with a mighty wind. And then it goes on to say that the Egyptian, that that it, it parts and all of the people begin to walk through on dry ground separates it they're moving through the enemy pursues them in and god stirs up confusion in the egyptian army puts them into a panic and then the lord says to moses stretch out your hand over the sea again that the water may come back upon them upon their chariots and upon their horsemen so moses stretches out his hand again over the sea and the sea returned to normal course when the morning appeared and as the egyptians fled into it the lord threw them into the midst of the sea the waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen and all the host of pharaoh that had followed them into the sea not one of them remained but the people of israel walked on dry ground through that sea the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. One son stands in obedience and agreement with the heart of God and with the word of God, what he is proclaiming. It wasn't Moses' idea to stretch out his staff. That was God's instructions to him. And so he stands there and he stretches out that staff and he makes a way to save all the people. And then God vanquished their enemy with the very means of their rescue. <laughs> The same path he cut through the sea for Israel collapsed on their enemies to wipe them out. God prepares tables for provision and anointing to destroy the work of the enemy, never to destroy his own. And Moses didn't have to do one thing to defeat that enemy. It wasn't his responsibility. He just had to trust God's heart. And the anointing that he received at God's table overflowed to the entire nation of Israel. My cup will overflow. Oh, what could God do in our days if his children would learn to settle the matter of his goodness? It only takes one anointed child of God to unlock victory for a whole community. What could he do if all of his children came to the table chose to stop partnering with fear, see God as he truly is, understand how his ways work, and stepped into our divine inheritance as sons and daughters. Jesus came as a glorious expression of God's good intentions for us, a demonstration of love poured out. He came not to destroy, but to save. And the enemy keeps whispering that lie that he came to destroy, that he came to take. No, that's the enemy's nature, not God's. God is good, and Christ is good. He is the good news, and he reveals God's nature to love and redeem. See, that's what he does. He goes into dead places, and he brings life. He does it in our hearts. He wants to do it in our world. And if he has led us into a barren place where we seem cornered by an enemy bent on destroying us, it is because he has actually positioned us for glorious victory a glorious triumph, an outpouring of divine anointing. See, Christ only ever leads us into victory. Only victory. 2 Corinthians 2.14 tells us, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, never to defeat, always to victory. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. 
the beauty of his goodness. He says he sends us into wilderness places where he can establish victory through us because he's chosen us as the means. And we get to spread his fragrance everywhere. Wherever God leads us, he has prepared a victory. Colossians 1, 12 through 13 commands us to give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of life. You have been qualified to participate in all that God has poured out, to be an inheritor of it. And it says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. You and I, if we are in Christ, have been delivered and transferred, and he wants to manifest that transfer here on earth. The problem is we still live like slaves to the power of darkness. We still believe in its power when it has actually been defeated, and so we miss the transfer into the kingdom promises. And that's exactly what happened to the Israelites. God delivered them from Egypt's power, but only two of the 600,000 men that left Egypt with Moses that day ever entered into the promise. The rest of them died in the desert. They partnered with fear instead of God refusing to come to his table. And even after the Red Sea, they saw what God did for them. And still when they came to the land, they refused to accept God's goodness and step into their new identity. They insisted on carrying the identity of a slave and defeat. And so they died in the desert, lavished in promises, but living in lack and want. So you and I need to learn the glory of the wilderness. <laughs> Even Jesus needed to pass, pass through the wilderness and face the enemy. When he was stepping into ministry, we have this remarkable moment where he's baptized and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And the very first thing we read after that moment is that the Holy Spirit, God himself, leads Jesus into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, he faces the enemy. And we're told in scripture that Jesus entered the wilderness carrying the spirit, but he left the wilderness empowered by the spirit. It's what unlocked the anointing. God prepares tables for us in the presence of the enemy. And where the enemy is will be desert places because he brings death and destruction and life. Those will always be wilderness places. But in that place, God says, I want to open up and unlock my provision in your life and my anointing for you. Even for Jesus, his victory in the wilderness activated the anointing on his life, and that's when he began to work his miracles. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. The wilderness marks the place between our deliverance and our transfer into the kingdom. Positionally in heaven, we're already there, but now God says, I want the blessings that are available to you in heaven to be lived out here on earth. And so the wilderness marks, we've been delivered, we've been stuck in the wilderness, and God is wanting to transfer us into the kingdom promises. He prepares tables of provision in wilderness places, barren places where the mark of the enemy is present so that he can bring his goodness into it and unlock the beauty of who he is, and bring life to what the enemy has made dead. And the wilderness is where we face the enemy and learn to step into divine identity. We abandon the slave, and we become the son or daughter and carry that into the new territory that God has for us. Jesus came to overturn 
the work of the enemy to make life spring from what the enemy has made barren. And I just want to close today reading a couple scriptures to you, promises of what God says he will do in the wilderness. In Isaiah 35, verse 5, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the, man, the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And here's why. It says, For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, and the burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. I want you to see that miracles are a result of wilderness outpourings. They're a requirement. They follow them. They follow them. It did in Jesus' life, and it will for for ours. God says, I prepare that table right there in the presence of the enemy, right where evil appears victorious. And that's what I want to send you into with the anointing to overturn it and release life. Isaiah 43, 19, God says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, and the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, and I give drink to my chosen people. The living water of the Holy Spirit, he wants to pour out of us. And he says, The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. The wilderness is where the chosen step into their identity as sons and daughters, which is why the enemy makes us so dread going there. He fears it because there is where we receive the power to defeat him. Isaiah 44, 3 says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants which brings us right into that final verse of Psalm 23, 6, which says, Surely, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That goodness and mercy following us is the result of the anointing that happens in the wilderness place, the life of God flowing in us and around us. We are taught by Jesus that the Holy Spirit, the living water, the rivers of the water of life has been put inside our hearts. And in the wilderness where God takes everything else away and he positions us in a place that we must either choose him or submit to the enemy, it will unlock that spring in our hearts and the living waters can flow. It comes from our union with him through love and trust. And so I want to ask you, what wilderness place do you find yourself in these days? God has prepared a table for you right there, right there, whether it's a broken marriage, whether it's illness, whether it's financial uncertainty, loss of a job, all of it, which seems that the enemy is winning, which seems to suggest that God is not good. I would counter that by the authority of God's word that he is saying, I have brought you here to this place because there is an enemy in your life of fear that needs to be defeated. And he has positioned you here to unlock divine provision beyond what you can imagine and an anointing on your life that will not only fill you to overflowing, it will flow out and touch the people that you love in your life around you. Come to the table. Believe in his heart for you. Believe in his goodness and what he tells you. Let's just settle the matter and receive the goodness of God and come to the table. I'm going to pray over you. 
Father God, Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that the truth of your heart would be so evident in, in your people, those unto the sound of my voice, Father, that your love would just pour forth. God, I just, I feel your love for us right now, God, and I just pray that your spirit would carry that out, Lord, through the video, through whatever screens people are watching to the hearts of the people and rip open that veil, that that seed that the enemy has planted in us that we all default to, that we all revert back to, that causes us to doubt your goodness this day, that it would be rooted out, that it would be finished, Lord, and that our hearts would remain open, Lord, and tender to receive the true seed that you have come to pour out, your love growing in us, filling us, flowing out and touching everything, bringing restoration, healing, life. You are good, good Father, Lord. Thank you for revealing your goodness to us, God. Give us eyes to see and hearts to receive your beauty, Lord. Reveal your glory in our midst and teach us to rise like Moses did, unafraid, trusting what you say because your word is true and we are safe in you. We are safe in you. We praise you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus that empowers all of this in us. Fix our gaze upon him and open us to receive the fullness of your love poured out through him, making us your beloved children. In his precious name, I pray. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that this word will bring light to dark places, life to dead places, hope to desperate places, and heaven to earthly places.